The reading this morning is taken from a variety of psalms, beginning with Psalm 22, verses 1 and 14. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. Psalm 31, verse 11. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbours and an object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. Psalm 34, verse 20. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Psalm 38, verses 12 and 13. Those who want to kill me set their traps. Those who would harm me talk of my ruin. All day long they scheme and lie. I am like the deaf who cannot hear, like the mute who cannot speak. Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who has shared my bread, has turned against me. Psalm 69, verse 21. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And finally, Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Um, This is uh, quite a daunting project, I have to say, but one that's uh, challenged me, certainly, as I've looked at God's word. The Psalms are long, 150 of them. Uh, they're, they're quite uh, long, some of them. There's a very long one called 119, a very short one right next to it. And there's so many things about the Psalms that say things about Jesus. And we're just going to look at one aspect of that this morning. There's, there's much more. We're rewinding what's called the Emmaus Road Discourse in Luke 24, 27, as Sue's reminded us. We read, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, this comes after Jesus had rebuked those two walking disciples for being foolish. Now, foolish is not sort of stupid boy kind of foolish. It's, it's kind of you've, you've got the argument wrong. It's a kind of Greek culture thing. When somebody was foolish, they weren't arguing correctly. And Jesus is really saying, you guys have been reading this stuff all, your, all the years that you've been on the planet. And haven't you seen me in it? How have you missed it? What have you been looking at that you haven't seen me, Jesus, in the words of the Scriptures? Uh, And what we must understand is is that this was perhaps not as obvious as it it should have been to them. Now, let me just draw a picture for you in in the air. This this is going to work, I know it is. 
that's a picture of the Bible. The Bible starts with creation. Everything's perfect. And through the Old Testament, sin corrupts, destroys, comes at people in different ways until we get to the end of the Old Testament and all that is left is one righteous man. And he's called Jesus. And he's on a cross. And from that moment, the story of the cross then goes to spread and make the church what it is today. We're based, we're cross people in the right sense of that phrase. And so that's what it is. The cry is always the need of a savior in the Old Testament, the need of sin being dealt with. Uh, where is he? Where is the one who will come? Now that's in the prophets, big time, but it's also in the Psalms, very big, which is why we're looking today at these Psalms. And you, and you may say, well, what right have we got to extrapolate the words of largely David that we're looking at this morning and then take them to mean something about Jesus? Well, my justification will be quite simple. Jesus did. Jesus took those words. Jesus appropriated those words. And nothing is, is that seen more obviously than the first one, which is Luke 22, verse 1, which, which will appear. Mike's going to try and follow me through here and put these up. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46 is exactly what Jesus said on the cross. Of the seven cries on the cross, this is the only one that Matthew and Mark record. It's important to know what's going on here. And this is quite difficult, I think, to understand. He doesn't just take on sin on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He becomes sin. He becomes sin. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is profound, my friends. This really is. This is why there is darkness at the cross. With darkness comes judgment. Judgment of God on our sins. As one writer puts it, God's wrath is burning out the very heart of Jesus. You imagine what that's like for a perfect son of God to take on this, this huge, horrific burden. Another writer said this, Hell came to Calvary that day, and the Savior descended into it and bore its horrors in our place. He became sin. The perfect, wonderful, beautiful Son of God became sin because He loves people like you and I. Another writer said this, and I thought this was lovely, Jesus' abandonment is horrific but it is not without purpose. Jesus did this purposefully, deliberately. He became sin. Think of it perhaps in a slightly different way. When Jesus meets Mary Magdalene after the resurrection, he uses the phrase, my father and your father. And he uses it lots of times, mostly in John's Gospel we find that. His relationship with his father is unique. It's special. It's intimate. He is still God's son. He cries, my God, my God. He doesn't just cry God. He says, my God. The cry of dereliction is a cry from the heart of the son to the father. 
but there is a relational separation at this darkness of the cross. We cannot begin to understand the depths of his agony. Look at the, less, the second bit of this verse. Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Here is the lonely, righteous Son of God, so lonely. The cry of dereliction. In the second verse in, in Psalm 22, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. This is a picture of a person reduced to fear and vulnerability. His strength departs. It's like being poured out on the ground. His body feels awkward. His bones are out of joint. His courage, his heart, if you like, has melted like wax. In his abandoned state, his physical faculties are in serious decline. His mind has affected his body. Now, when David wrote these words, of course, he was in agony because he speaks of evil men who pierced his hands and feet. That's later in the same psalm. And he also talks about those who divide his garments among them and cast them um, for lots for his clothing now that's exactly what happened in Jesus day that's in Psalm 22 too prophetic words describing exactly what happened on the hill of Calvary and Jesus is saying to the two men on the way to Emmaus hey that's me didn't you see it didn't you sing that psalm when you went to your church or your synagogue rather did you not do that? Did you not hear that? Let's go on to the next verse, Psalm 31. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors. I am a dread to all my friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. Now, David certainly had his enemies uh, when he wrote this, before he was king, particularly towards the end of his kingship. Uh, he understood the loneliness of leadership. Jesus had lived and worked with 12 people very closely. Three years of fellowship, of meals, of walking, of talking, and being with them. And they, they were his buddies. They were his mates. Modern word, but you get the drift. But when he needed them most in the garden, they slept. Could you not watch with me one hour? Could you not... It's just so horrible to think that Jesus would do that, would have that done to him by those people who'd been faithful and followed and listened and been with him. Now, at the time, the Jewish leaders saw Jesus very much as a threat to both reputation and their income. The Roman authorities feared civil disobedience, and so Jesus was a threat. But Jesus was a man. He was a relationship man. He had a group of friends who seen everything and now his friends have left him he is arrested alone he is tried alone and from then on he only speaks to his enemies can you imagine the loneliness having been surrounded by this band that had followed him around and you could almost see them sitting down for their picnics or their evening meals or whatever you know and they've gone. The loneliness 
of the righteous Son of God. Next verse, Psalm 34. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Now here is some encouragement for a person facing pain and trouble. David may be writing about his time when Saul pursued him absolutely relentlessly, but Jesus has, even now, at this moment of dereliction, he has the, the clear sense that God's purposes will not be thwarted. The, the Father's plan will happen. Pain and death must be endured, but there will be an end. The Lord delivers. It says it in that verse, doesn't it? Do, do you sometimes get this when you think, when will this trouble end? I can't see an end to it. Have you ever said that in your life? I have, certainly. When's this going to happen? And yet Jesus hung on the cross, knowing God had sent him there. It was purposeful. It was deliberate. It was incredibly lonely. And yet, there was purpose. His death, and only his death, he only could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. The soldiers came to break the legs of the crucified. This isn't particularly good to talk about, but I'm going to. You died from crucifixion, usually through asphyxiation. You couldn't get your breath. Let me illustrate. Let me slump my shoulders. Now, if I get like that, and I've been sat watching the telly too long, you know, you can go, that feels better. Can't do that on a cross. And if you break someone's legs, you can't do it because it's just agony. So we have a picture. With broken legs, death was quicker. So we read in John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 32, that Jesus uh, would not have his legs broken. The other two thieves had their legs broken, but not Jesus. Jesus was already dead. He died according to God's timing, not man's. He committed his spirit. He was left whole. God protected him by taking at the right time. His legs would not be broken. And it's there in the Psalms. Looking forward to that moment when Jesus was approaching death. It's there. And Jesus again is saying to our Emmaus friends, that's me. That talks about me. Yes, it talks in a figurative way about David, but it primarily looks forward. Let's move on to Psalm 38, verse 12. Those who seek my life set their traps. Those who would harm me talk of my ruin. All day long they plan deception. I am like a deaf man who cannot hear, like a mute who cannot open his mouth. Facing accusations which aren't true is painful. Have you ever had it? Where somebody says, I know you did that. I know you did that. And you just want to say, no, I didn't. I did. It wasn't me. It really wasn't. David faced it. He had to deal with it. Unrest and rebellion, even against his leadership. Jesus certainly had it in Jewish and Roman courts, all for different reasons, trying to silence him. And when you think of it, it's kind of surreal, isn't it? That the, uh, a Roman governor or a high priest thought he could actually silence the Son of God. It's ludicrous to think of it. 
But they certainly set traps to try and catch him. And such is his physical state that he remains silent. His silence is deafening. Was Jesus simply saying, well, if I answered, you wouldn't get it? Or is it, or in his attempt to make something Jesus could say against Jewish law, and they could pin that on him? No, he, for much of his trial time, he remained silent. The Jewish leaders saw him so much of the threat, the Romans did too, but Jesus was a man who knew that he would not be trapped by words. His ability, read it yourself sometime during Lent, his ability to know when to speak and when to remain silent is incredible. When they ask him a question that will trap him, he remains silent. Are you the son of God? Well, you said it. His ability to know to be mute as the psalm talks about it is immeasurable. Jesus' beauty of timing and understanding of what's in front of him. And bear in mind that at this moment, he is lonely, he's in pain, he has nobody with him. And he did it for you. It is unbelievable. Go on to Psalm 41, and this must have been one of the most painful ones. Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Well, David certainly knew that. The band of 12 disciples would have shared much, talked a lot, and so on. But when one man who was part of that group must... Oh, the betrayal must have been devastating, mustn't it? Some of you know that pain. When someone you thought you could trust as a friend who'd stick up for you, would stand with you, <laughs> walks away from you. But we read in Matthew, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Now that is a picture of someone having a meal with Jesus. In those days, meals were valued perhaps more highly than we valued them. Uh, if you follow Luke's gospel, I have a wonderful um, doctoral thesis that somebody, a colleague of Heather's wrote many, many years ago, of all the meals in Luke's gospel and the way that Jesus used them to create fellowship. Meals were big, marvelous things. And it's hard to understand, isn't it, that someone who heard Jesus teach watched him do miracles, amazed crowds with his God-given wisdom, and had been blessed with hours of his time invested him, would turn his back on him. How could you do that, Judas? How could you? Surely I would have stuck with Jesus, you might say. I wouldn't have been like that. But this verse reminds me that when we see pressure coming, it's very easy to look for a way out and not to trust God. Now Jesus had the pain of a disloyal friend to add to his loneliness. So can you begin to get this picture? It's coming at him from all directions. There is the loneliness, the cry of dereliction on the cross, but then the friends have gone. The enemies are out to get him. There's so many things pressurizing him and getting at him. 
and yet still he stays there. Psalm 69, 21, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Now, I struggle with this bit because I've seen different interpretations of this. Most writers believe that gall was offered to, to a crucified victim as a kind of anesthetic to dull the pain. In David's time, it's probably figurative, but he'd endured scorn that had left him heartbroken. But for Jesus, nothing should be given to him that numbed his experience of death. A death so important for the sin of the world. He wanted to be fully conscious throughout. The people who offered the drink were not his friends. Again, some writers think this is a cruel gesture by soldiers and people round about. It's not a refreshing drink, quite the opposite. It's another way of torturing him. The bitterness will only intensify the thirst. And so Jesus had to put up with it with those that were putting him to death. There they were, mocking. Oh, I have this. Might help you a bit, is the tone of probably what was said at that time. And when wine is offered, the crowd shout to stop it. No, 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 don't give him any, don't give him any wine, no. Crucifixion, my friends, we prettify it. It's ugly. It's horrible. Crowds would gather to mock, a bit like a sort of medieval execution. People would stand around, baying for blood. Go on, go on, he deserves it. They loved to see the victim suffer. Yet Jesus, in this agonizing moment, can you believe this? As the crowd shouted their insults at him, he looked down on them with a heart of love. I am here to die for those people. And all they can do is shout insults straight into the face of a dying man. I hope you're beginning to get the sense, as I've had, uh, I won't say battling with this, but it's, but it's taken me a bit of time to get my head around some of this stuff. And, and to realize afresh what my Jesus did for me, my Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you. And he did that, and he did it, and he'd do it again if he had to, but he doesn't have to, because Hebrews tells us that it's a once-for-all sacrifice. Two more to go. The Lord says to my Lord, 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. At moments of extremity, you need to know who's with you. Uh, the Lord says to my Lord, David's writing this, and he's saying, well, I need to understand that God is the ultimate authority at its heart. The enthroned king of the universe is not to be mocked and mucked around with, as David did with him. There will be one greater than David. And in Matthew 22, quotes, Jesus quotes this exact verse to justify his claim to be God's son. David's ultimate authority is God, and so is ours. And what it's saying is, look, whatever enemies come, isn't this an encouragement to those Christians, not like us, who live in ultimate persecuted settings? Pakistanis, Sudanis, our friends in Ukraine, having endured two years of that filthy, horrible war. 
ultimately enemies will be under your feet. They will be subject to God. Whatever enemies, they will be trodden down. Jesus suffered the agony of the cross. He knew God's plan would work, that those who sin will have to come under judgment. They will come under feet and trodden down because there will be ultimate triumph. In terms of Jesus, that's his restoration to heaven. For us, my friends, it is heaven. Whatever you're going through, health, money, things that are going wrong in your family or life or whatever, ultimately, 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 there will be glory. Enemies will be made a footstool. And finally, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. An illustration from the building trade. Most Jewish buildings at the time were built of stone. And I don't know if you ever watched this. When, I, when we were in college up north, we used to uh, look at these marvelous stone walls. And I, I don't know if you know how they build stone walls. It's quite fascinating because this helps us understand it. You have a lot of stones and you, you kind of look there, very knowledgeable-like, and you say, yeah, that's the right one there, lad. We'll put that one in. That fits beautifully. Is that a lousy northern accent? It is, isn't it? But that's what you did. You know, you picked it up and, yeah, that one's great. That one's great. Yeah, we'll put that. Yeah, that one's there. So sometimes you pick one up and say, that's no good. No, no, that's no good. And this is how they built walls in, in Jesus' time. And so you have this picture of these pile of stones. And, and you reject and you reject and you reject until you get right to the end, to that key stone that fits and holds the building together. And say, the one that matters is that one. Let's pick that one up and put it in. And the wall is complete. That's the picture here. Jesus quotes it, and he knows that he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. They rejected him. Stones were rejected. This is the picture. Jesus was rejected. But you take that capstone away, and it collapses. And Jesus is saying that he is the chosen one, the one that fits the one that holds it together, the one that holds the whole world together. And Jesus, in his loneliness, knew that. He knew it. The loneliness of Jesus is hard to comprehend. I, I found this reading it, studying it. How, how do I begin to get hold of the idea Jesus carrying the agony of sin was totally bereft of everything that had been in his life before. He was lonely. Jesus picked up the words of the psalmist and showed to the two disciples walking to Emmaus the full seriousness of his loneliness on the cross. But he would have been very careful to say to them, I'm sure... The ultimate triumph is God. The person who was rejected by his own people will be the means of our salvation. And he endured his loneliness and the mockery 
and the desertion because he loved you so much enough to die for you and the words Jesus used from the Psalms teach us that what a saviour Amen